Hello and welcome to the next Beaver Pod. We have with us today Hugh Griffiths, Junior Vice President of Beaver, and Sarah Gasper, who is joining us today. Uh, Sarah looks after all the Beaver educational programs, so that varies from the CPD, um, but her real baby has been the online learning platform. So those of you who haven't been there, make sure you get along. Hi, Sarah. Hello. And hi, Hugh. Hi there. So today we're going to talk uh, at length or not hopefully not too much length but talk about um welfare call outs particularly in light of something that we've now put up on the web to help people deal with those um but we'd start with uh, parish news um first on the list of news items this week is brexit uh, by the time you hear this it may all be done and dusted but there are some things that you need to be aware of um firstly there's been some reassurance given by government on the availability of vet medicines post a no deal brexit and we wait to see if that is actually a it happens b if the availability is maintained but importation shouldn't be a problem exportation may be more of an issue but that sh shouldn't matter from medicines um same deal really applies to the next item which is uh importation and exportation of horses so we we will not change our import regulations so horses will be able to come into the uk in the same way that they always were um, but post a no deal Brexit, um, we will have to jump through various hoops. Now, we have recently been secured listed status, um, which means that we have some blood tests that we need to go through. Effectively, that means if we do leave on the 31st of October and people are wanting to move horses early on, then they're too late to start the process if they haven't started it already. If you've got clients that are looking to move horses in the near future, please have a look at the Beaver website, work out what you've got to do and, and give yourself um, ideally six weeks notice pre-movement. Uh, and finally, there's been some guidance on importation into the UK of semen and embryos post-Brexit, if it's a no-deal Brexit. Um, and that won't apply to the majority of, of people doing artificial insemination. But if you're acting as an importer yourself, and you are using traces to import semen or embryos, then you will need to go online and look at the new system because you will need to change your procedures of importing um, semen and embryos. That's Brexit. Who knows where it'll end up? Uh, West Now virus is also in the news, and Germany has had its first case of a human contracting West Now virus whilst in Germany, um, which is concerning, um, and we watch that space. Uh, Antimicrobial resistance, as many of you will have seen in e-news, we've got a survey out there looking to address um, or to assess the level of antimicrobial usage and any incidents of resistance in practice. We've got loads of people who've done the survey already, but I'd encourage you, if you haven't yet done so, please have a look at your e-news um, and go onto the survey. It's run by Liverpool University in association with Beaver, and it will hopefully arm us in the future with the right information we need to protect our our antimicrobials um, and finally we've got our results out from congress congress this year those of you who will have attended will know that it was a it was a busy and fun event um, congress attendance was as highest it's been for six years so a really good turnout and i think feedback we've had across the board was good both of you went sarah did you have a good time yeah it's great really enjoyed it good and hugh 
<laughs> I saw you after the annual dinner and you looked as if you'd had a good time. Yeah, very much so. I thought it was a good event and that, yeah, very well attended and the feedback on the ground was very positive. So, yeah, very pleased with that. Brilliant. Thank you both. Um, so our lead topic for the day is welfare call-outs and Beaver has just put together a toolkit online um, to attempt to make life easier for practitioners who haven't had much experience of, of call-outs from welfare organisations. But, but I guess both of you guys will have done. Hugh, where have you f found it difficult when you've had welfare call-outs? I think they often represent the perfect storm, don't they? Because you, you'd very much get them rarely at the time of day when you want them, and they're often out of hours or when there's limited help around or, you know, in the place with terrible phone signals you can't ring for help or, or go online to get the information that you're looking for. So I think sort of the, the isolation of the, the moment is probably the thing that catches you out. And then they're also very heightened emotional moments, aren't they? And, you know, the animal's clearly in distress or usually it's clearly in distress and, and the people are, are in their own distress because for whatever reason... I think as it was said at one of the, the welfare conferences, life happens and that's why a lot of these animals end up where they are and the pathway to that moment isn't perfect for anybody. So it's just one of those sort of very, very high octane moments and and the tricky bit is to, to calm it down and walk your way through it in, in an appropriate way for, for everybody concerned. And have you been, uh, you know, have you been shocked by some of the things that you've seen? Are your eyes really opened? I think the difficulty is that everybody's leading a different life, aren't they? And we all think that the one that they're leading is pretty normal, but then you see other people and, and theirs is quite different. Um, and it's it's trying to be true to what you are you are here to do and, and, and to to hold your opinion in a, in a very considered and in a very appropriate way without being dismissive of other people. I think the case that comes to mind for me is one where, you know, I had a client who who basically just didn't believe in any form of conventional medicine. And I found that quite difficult because everything that I was rationalising and using as the backbone of my concern, um, that individual ha had no time for that opinion and, and was very clear that, that it was wrong and that their opinions on, on their treatment therapies were right. So you know, it's quite a sort of quite a shock to, to then come across that. And Having you know, you certainly don't have a lecture in your final year of what to do if you meet somebody who doesn't believe in any any form of medicine that you do. Absolutely, absolutely, Sarah. I know you had um, you've you've had all sorts of cases that you've been called out to, but you had a more recently in the last few years you've been called out to a particularly nasty case which challenged you in terms of evidence gathering. Yes, yeah, I think um, one of the things that I learned there was a a lot of horses involved in the one that I went to and um, we knew that we needed to take we took lots of spared blood tubes I took another vet with me as well um, but just um, the amount of samples that we ended up with with bloods for multiple horses and the requirements to do multiple clinical exams with multiple IDs needing to be drawn um, and the 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 ability of yourself to stay calm and professional and not let the situation get to you when you've got horses that are obviously in a lot of trouble um, and to 
make sure that you stay clear and clinical in your approach and that you've documented everything, even if it seems obvious at the time. Um, that was quite an eye opener. And I think, as he was saying, yeah. when it can be really, because they're very emotive situations and there's always a story um, and it's trying to separate yourself from the story and keeping yourself clinical and not emotionless, but, you know, approachable, but purely professional and not. Yeah. Did you have any, did you have any t tips for, um, for that evidence gathering? Am I right in remembering that you took a lot of photos? We did. Um, we <laughs> got very snap happy. Um, so we, um, I drew them, um, we took where they were already microchipped, we took microchip numbers, um, and then we got quite old school about it and got a clipboard and a pen and some paper and wrote the RSPCA case number on the clipboard and photographed the horses from each side, um, every angle, uh, with the clipboard in it so that there couldn't be any confusion hopefully in the future about which horse was which and then made sure the blood tubes were all labeled with the RSPCA number and the microchip number where there was one um, and obviously the paperwork was all labeled with those um, identifying numbers as well. And of course that that those sorts of cases um, can go on for a very long time can't they? You yes. Can to... yeah. So the one that I, I was involved in um, went to court over a year after I was initially called out um, and uh, there may be an appeal, so it may be back in court um, and that will take another year. So they literally drag on for years um, and with the best will in the world, none of, <laughs> none of us can remember detail over years. Um, I mean, they are cases that stand out and stick in your mind, but, um, you know, the, the bitty detail of which blood tube belonged to which horse or which um, body condition score out of many um, was pertinent to exactly which set of photos. Um. <laughs> so, so, so the better the notes, yeah. uh, more than yes. ever, good notes are yes. critical. <laughs> um, and Hugh, what... In that sort of court scenario, you can you you can be faced with uh, colleagues from the profession. Yeah, very much so, and I think every comes at that from a slightly different angle. And again, it's probably one of the first times in your career where you're meeting people that you've possibly vaguely heard or possibly not. And it's important to just bear in mind that everybody's representing their position here, and um, and it's good to be aware that. Those positions are not always on the on the same sheet, and and don't be embarrassed to be appropriate with your with your evidence giving without being overly gushing and, and sort of divulging everything in in the first discussion with somebody that you don't really know. You have to sort of consider who you're representing, and and you're handing over appropriate information at the appropriate time, and um, and that's a, that's new for most people. And again, I think as Sarah said very well, it, that those moments are often a very, very long time after you, you saw the case. And and I think with that in mind, I think it's very important for our membership to, to have the confidence to go back to the practice, you know, or phone the practice from that sort of a call out and say, 
you know, I, I've been called to go here, and therefore I now need X amount of time to, to document this accordingly right now, as opposed to, you know, it's always going to be on a busy day when you're trying to fit it in in between five other things. And again, it's, it's one of those moments where you have to say, okay, well, today's happened. This is where I find myself. I now need a chapter of time to, to write this down properly, because otherwise it's going to come back to haunt us all at a later date when, when we least expect it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Sarah, have you come, have you faced cases where you've been called out where you've, where you've, I don't know, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard people going out and they've been pressurized into uh, pushing for a prosecution style case where you've perhaps felt that this is more of an advice and guidance. Yeah. Um, yes, definitely. In the past, um, I've um, been out to cases where um, even ones where we've been the, the, the practice um, treating the pony and the management of a laminitic or an old geriatric pony has slipped or a member of the public has been concerned there's an old pony with a rug on um, wandering around with a muzzle on in a field um, and I you know I have had run-ins with um, officers about actually this needs managing um, rather than prosecuting probably um, this is a manageable situation and you know now that we as a practice are aware that this situation is going on we can work with these people and um, hopefully get back on top of the situation. Perfect and Hugh have you have you had a look at the toolkit that we've popped up online do you have any thoughts of it? Yeah, I think it's great because I think I think it just basically gives you a step-by-step guide through and I think that's probably what our members need at that moment in time everybody's everybody's got the right intentions and, and has the right skill set to do the examination etc and I think that you know the, the way we've set out the, the toolkit and and the welfare workflow chart I think that just allows us to walk through the experience and and then with you know with the downloads of the the witness details and the witness statements and etc and the RSPCA exam form for example they're all opportunities for us to familiarise ourselves with, with those documents from a platform, i.e. Beaver, that we trust. And therefore, I think that in itself will give you confidence to go through it and do it sort of very well. Great. And I think that's the goal, isn't it? We all, we all know that everyone, everyone's going there with the right intentions, but it's, it's pretty easy to, through enthusiasm or uh, well-meaning actions, to to make a mess of things and it's quite important that that we as a profession get these things right rather than ending up with egg on our faces completely it's trying not to be overwhelmed by it really great any top tips Hugh keep calm and carry on (laughs) keep calm anything better anything Um, better than that really keep calm do your clinical exam. Be professional. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Uh, thank you both very much for that. Um, great to hear your thoughts on that. And do, if you're listening and you haven't got loads of experience in going out to welfare cases, have a look because you never know when that call is going to come. And as Hugh said, it'll always be at the wrong time. Um, thank you, Sarah. Hugh, we're going to continue with you in a minute uh, and hear a little bit about your pathway to the role of junior vice president. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, Sarah.
So Hugh, thank you for agreeing to this interrogation. Um, we're going to find out a little bit about what brought you here today. So as a, as a wee nipper, what made you want to be a vet? And was it always going to be a horse vet? Um, so I was brought up on a, a family farm. We had dairy cows and I was small and now latterly beef and sheep. Um, so the vet came to the farm regularly to do various sort of clinical work. Um, I was always the annoying child who would hang around and watch and, and ask questions when they were trying to get through the day and go home. So definitely an interest in animals, biology and, and veterinary science by default, I suppose. But at that point, certainly no burning, desperate desire to be a vet, just an interest in, in biology and science. And and horses, were they a part of your your growing up or not really? No, very much, definitely not. As I said to a few people in the past, as far as my dad's concerned, if you can't eat it or milk it, it doesn't live on our farm. So horses were out. <laughs> okay, so that so you decided to apply to vet school. Where did you go? Actually, uh, first I did two degrees. So I'm a, a, a two degree student. So I went to um, London first to do animal science because I'd spent a summer at the Morden Institute um, and I really, really enjoyed it and it was really fun. And I thought I wanted to be a scientist, but then... Having done that degree, I shied away from the lab coat um, and decided that I'd rather be a vet than a true than a true sort of lab scientist. So I then went to Liverpool and um, and did my more gilet than more gilet than lab. Yeah, coat. more sort of driving around in my car than in one room for the rest of my life. Yeah. <laughs> so you went, went to Liverpool. Liverpool. Um, very blessed. There was a great bunch of people there at the time, and I can probably blame people like Derek and Barry and Ellen and Pete and all of that crowd for my interest in equine. They were very much on top of their game and everything within their department was very, very interesting and very well taught and stimulating. And I think they sort of, they drove my interest in, in equine veterinary medicine hugely. So fresh faced and wet behind the ears, did you come out to be an equine vet at that stage? No, not at all. Um, I... I'd seen practice in the home practice, which again, as I said earlier, I've, I'd known all my life because of dad's farm. So I did what I suppose we were always taught not to do. I went back to the, the home practice straight away. I had a couple of friends who wanted to go traveling. So I said I'd sort of job sit their jobs, probably not very adequately as they were five years qualified and I was a new grad. But um, a couple of went to Australia and did three months here and three months there. So I did, I did six months there doing mixed. Um, and then saw an advert in the vet record hard copy as it was then um for a stud job in um Tipperary and I thought oh that sounds great fun so I applied for that and got that and then that took me to, to Tipperary for a year um had a, an amazing time working as a stud vet out there maybe <laughs> do you remember um, I remember the daytime better than the night time <laughs> 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 I came back very tired and in need of a, a healthy lifestyle. So where did you come so back? I came to? back to um, Shotram Byers in in Surrey. So I um, went to work with Mike yeah. and Murray for a while and, and they were delightful and really, really kind. And I did a, a huge amount of work there. So it was sort of cutting my teeth in a slightly different way. Ireland was very much the repro side of things. And then with Mike and Murray, it was just a lot of polar work and and again just a lot of work i think for me those early five years i saw a lot of cases and i think that stood me in yeah. good stead at you know, the time it was it was exciting and tiring but certainly the right chapter of my life to get get that caseload under my belt 
And then, then was it straight to lip hook or was there somewhere in between? No, straight to lip hook. So I was referring regularly to lip hook being them being in Hampshire and sort of half an hour down the road from the practice at Cranley. So I knew the team there pretty well and I just engaged with them with all the referrals. So when an ambulatory position came up there, it was a natural thing for me to keep an eye out for. And um, and as I said to Jeremy, it wasn't that I wanted to get involved with all the surgeries or become a, a surgeon or a, a medicine diplomat. I just wanted to have close proximity to those cases whilst they were being worked up. So referring to my own team, I suppose, as opposed to somebody else's team. Yeah. And you've been there how long now? I've been there for 15 years now. So that's <laughs> slightly frightening. <laughs> <laughs> and and ambulatory through and through, is that right? Yes, very much so. Yeah, uh, very much ambulatory through and through. The repro thing puts a little bit of a twist on that, as in I'll refer my repro cases into myself as opposed to another individual. Yeah. So I do have some cases in the hospital. But even the foaling mares and stuff, I can't do it without the medicine team because they've got a much better organized system for 24-7 care um, than the ambulatory team have in the hospital. We have, you know, we're organizing our own 24-7 care out, away from the practice. So um, so when my cases, I refer them into myself for day-to-day work on them, yeah. but, um, but they still sit comfortably under the care of the, you know, the, the staff at the hospital. Yeah. Great. So... Have you had any doubts about your choice of profession since you since you graduated? Probably only doubts would be sort of the disadvantage of being somebody reasonably keen and eager in life. You tend to hang out with equally keen and eager people, and you know people from uni who did other things have probably progressed differently, shall we say, yeah. <laughs> over that twenty years. Um, uh, but no, you know, through and through, I think. It doesn't matter where you go and who you meet. Nobody's got the perfect life. And, you know, I I consider myself very, very blessed with the life that I have. And, um, you know, part of it's work and part of it's luck. And it can always be better paid or less hours or whatever. But I think, you know, compared to most people on this planet, I'm a very lucky person. Well, that's probably the perfect point to leave it. Hugh, thank you very much. No problem. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.